Once the dead man is revived, we can ask him five questions, at which point he will die again, mm -hmm. never to be re-revived. Were you killed in the Battle of the Everhorse? Yes. Four more questions, right? Yes. No, 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 that, that wasn't for you. Did that count as a question? Yes. Damn it. Only answer when I talk to you, okay? Yes. Why did you say okay at the end of that? I didn't. fans movies love each other <laughs> hello and welcome to the world be pod where we discuss all things movies past present and occasionally future my name is sammy chester so used to having a co-host but this is i think the first time i've hosted an episode alone since our sports movies days it falls upon my shoulders to introduce the guests that we do have joining us as a host of his own movie podcast which i'm sure we'll touch on as the current champion of our brother podcasts, Patreon listeners, the one and only Kyle, probably your best introduce yourself because uh, further details escape me. I am Kyle. I host a very brand new podcast called Board Game Box Office, where we talk about movies and board games. I think board games were more of my foray. Always enjoyed movies. I will watch the big blockbusters in theaters. And then when the Oscar nominees come out, catch up on those. They got nominated. Those 2022 Oscar nominees. I just watched like two months ago this is our first episode of the year taken off january february march because we do monthly episodes we kind of come back and take a look at dump areas the first quarter of the year kind of say okay what did we really like or maybe dislike so far this year so this is our q1 episode it rolls in well kyle with what you said because you actually the first few months of every given year you're busiest in movies because that's when you're really uh watching everything yes. that came out the past year i've been like watching two to three movies a day which is was really rare for me i think part of it is because i wanted stuff to talk about on the podcast where it was used to be I would just watch them when I wanted to watch them. And now it's like, I got to have something to talk about. I got to have something to talk about. So I'm really enjoying getting to like watch all these movies and kind of watching stuff that I never would have before. I'm kind of like opening up what interests me. I've watched eight 2023 movies. Most of them have been within the last two weeks. Top of that, I've been watching stuff that I need to for our podcast because we all submit two movies that we want the other ones to watch. I've been alternating. like, all right, now it's a 2023 release. Now it's something older. It's been great. It's uh, 12. I think I started at 13th, but it was a very long French movie. We'll get into why some, maybe a few too many uh, foreign language movies. And it was just so slow and artsy in French that I, I just didn't have the time for it. I was it's called Pacifiction. If anyone wants to endure it themselves, I think it's almost three hours long. Oh my 12. God similar numbers i saw some crazy person on twitter he said hey 70 movies watched so far in 2023 like new movies 2023 movies the idea of seeing 70 movies that came out this year at this point it strikes me as so you just need something else to be doing in your life because so many bad okay. movies come out and to subject yourself to that many bad movies i don't even think theaters punch out that many so that means you got to be like Chasing festivals, chasing Netflix. I felt 12 was sort of pushing it. And the reason that I, I have seen as many as I have is because a lot of well-regarded foreign language movies drop in the first few months of the year that were from the past year, meaning they were released in France or Germany or whatnot sometime in 2022. And then they only really get released in the US and get to digital streaming in January, February, or March of the following year. I define those as whatever calendar year is convenient for me, meaning if I was able to somehow access them in the prior year, which is their sort of official date because they qualify for Oscars or whatnot, 
then I'll consider them a 2022 movie. So I know, like, for instance, in the World Report, best movie of our first year, 2019, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We had all seen that by the time of the bracket in 2019, 2020. So we defined it as a 2019 movie. I don't think anyone of our listeners had actually had a chance to see it because it only released in the U.S. in uh, late March of 2020. So that was most of my 12 watches. This, to me, so far is the year of games, which is why I was so happy to have you join us outside of all your other accomplishments. Because, you know, you do have a podcast, which is about games and, and movies. Tetris, Dungeons & Dragons, John Wick 4 is a video game. Mario just came out, you know, and it's also obviously movies are being overtaken by games. Creed, I guess, is sort of a feels like Mike Tyson's punch out at some point. Tetris shout out there. Eventually see Mario because I do like Mario video games. But like, will we start getting more like that where we see like Legend of Zelda? Will we get Halo? Yeah. That's where, I, where I'm wondering if they go or if they go into more of Tetris side of things or look at this business upstart of video games and these video game businesses, historical events now. As I was told by a favorite English teacher when I was applying to college, he said, a great piece of writing has zero actual plot. Meaning if you write something so well, you can write about sitting and staring at the clouds. You don't have to come up with some really strong message, write really well, which I was okay. That's easier said than done. You're an English teacher and I'm not. <laughs> Maybe that's the story of, of good movies as well. But let's start, Carl, I suggest with the three movies we're going to give that we like the most from this year in three months i'm glad john isn't here actually because i think i would be um ganged up on between you two because uh, my top three are very ip focused but my number three was actually a recommendation by you and that is tetris if either of us gives a top three which is on the other person's list higher up then we just push it to discuss it, it together. It's an interesting use of IP. We can also let's maybe touch on that when, when we go into it. I imagine there were many versions of a Tetris movie that were discussed in the production side before they decided on, on this version. I will shock and awe you. I couldn't identify a number three. Of the 12 oh. movies I saw, only <laughs> two of them, only two of them, am I even ready at this point to recommend? And so I can't even give you a, uh, number three at this point. Wow. 12 movies and only two make the podium. That's telly. It's this year so far. My number two, I am the Marvel fanboy, 32 fans, I think, um, but Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, is my number two. Uh, Non-Marvel fans had issues with it, but I also think that's kind of the cool thing to do now is to hate on what Marvel's doing. I just really had fun with it, and I kind of wasn't expecting to because I did not like the second Ant-Man at all. But I, I liked what they did. I thought Kang was a great villain. The actor who plays him might not be great. Jonathan Majors was still, I think, kosher when Ant-Man came out. You know, we saw this with Tar last year. And then, you know, we discussed it, obviously, with many, many artists, uh, you know, since if an artist's bad behavior, we only found out about it after the fact. It wasn't parted directly of the creation of a given piece of content. And I think we can still enjoy that piece of content. That's kind of yeah. how I see it. So, you know, if it's a movie where the director was like torturing the people on set or obviously, you know, assaulting them or anything worse, then that sort of tarnishes that given work of art. But if an actor is found out to have, when they were making the movie in some sort of criminal uh, activities, I think you can still enjoy the, the piece of content for what it is, bearing yeah, in mind I'm maybe some about, of the context. I'm all about separating the art from the artist. We still yeah. don't know the full story yet. So like, I'm trying not to let it hamper my mood on it too much, but I just, I thought it was a fun romp. Paul Rudd kills it. Modoc, who is one of the other villains in the movie, is, is so ridiculous. He's such a ridiculous character, and I, I just really had a fun time with it, and I think it does set 
the overall story for Marvel going forward. When you said that people have been sort of writing on MCU and it's the cool thing to do these days, people also have been writing on Ant-Man since the first one came out as kind of yeah. the C-level character series within the larger MCU. I know they've tried to make the character a bit more relevant to the larger scheme of things. Ant-Man has been the one MCU series that I've skipped since the start. I'm, when I think superheroes, I'm ultimately kind of a Batman where whether or not... Yeah, whether or not the movie decides to frame it as a bit darker, I, I do like edge to my kind of superhero setup. Kid, I remember I always liked Ghost Rider just because of the visuals. I had never read the comics and know anything about it. But I just like that sense of hero and superhero is a bit more maybe present to where you're not saving someone like Captain Underpants, like, you know, with a smile and a wave and a, and a joke. <laughs> Doing it with sort of a, a tortured past Ghost Rider and Batman and, and you, you can sort of see where my cards lie. For me, it was an easy miss. And I don't know what it says about MCU that it's sort of the one they drop earlier in the year. It's the introduction of, what is it, Phase 5. It's Jonathan yeah. Majors, who's kind of their big new Thanos-like villain. The COVID stuff really threw them off. Mm -hmm. The timeline really had to alter. Mixing that with like the TV shows, and then some TV shows have gotten delayed. All of that has like really messed with like how they're releasing things. I don't think you can like think about it too much in terms of like when are they releasing it because they're going to make money no matter what money though where would you put it to give in context of MCU movies you'd like the most? I have this around like 13th or 14th between them so it's like it's either top of the middle tier bottom of the top tier my first thing with mc movies is is it boring and if i was bored of it then it's bottom five there are only like five of those movies where i was like bored by it like the eternals i was bored by ant-man 2 i was bored by meet that barometer of like entertaining me for two hours that's like what i'm asking for now there's like some truly special stuff like infinity war is like a very special movie to me it's probably my favorite movie of all time from here on out it's going to be hard to top those like top three four five movies for the mcu if you fall anywhere from like that seven to like 15 16 range i think you're a very good marvel movie and so that's where yeah I'm like that, that sounds like it there. i don't consider ip created material if it's of some c-level comics character from decades in the past first movie about ant-man or even the first movie about iron man like you know when you're creating more ip upon a really well-known brand like a mario or a spider-man or something that's when you're sort of just using the brand to almost write the movie and then you're maybe just adding a bit of creativity along the way the fun villain in the movie and obviously the jonathan majors villain in the movie no one's ever heard of those guys before i don't think even people who are into like marvel have ever heard of those guys before so effectively new content that you're working with because for 90 percent of the audience it's pretty new and this touches upon a movie which i hope is in your top three my number two is dungeons and dragons this is higher up on your list yeah this is your number one movie so far of the year it was my number two dungeons and dragons to me it's not ip in a strong sense in that very few people saw dungeons and dragons and yeah they know it's part of this like super nerdy uh, uh pastime from the 1980s and whatnot and stranger things has made that a bit more popular in in, in mainstream very few people saw Dungeons and Dragons and was like, ah, okay, Waterdeep or Baldur's Gate. Oh, that's content that I recognize. Most people saw it and were like, oh, this is like a fun buddy fantasy movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. It's not really utilizing brands to its benefit. It's having to really create everything. Since that you've even heard of there being Dungeons and Dragons movies in the past, it's kind of digging out of a hole because those were famously terrible. I think it's my number one because ultimately it feels like a Marvel movie to me. It's got humor in the right spots. It's got some pretty decent action scenes. It's got some mystery to it. 
But really what makes it special, like I think what makes Marvel movies special is honestly is that it's focused on its characters and not just the characters, the focus on the heroes. What makes them heroes, Chris Pine's character, he had flaws. It's important to give your heroes. And I'm not saying like IPs or other movies don't do that, but like I just think Marvel and like Dungeons and Dragons did that really well. You could root for these characters, but you could also be like, why are you doing that? That's not the smart thing to do. Coming from like the board game world, I have actually never played Dungeons and Dragons before, even though they're very tangentially related. It's never been something that I've even been interested in playing. It takes more creativity to play something like Dungeons and Dragons because it's like a role-playing game. But I have played board games, use the Dungeon and Dragon theme. And because of those board games, I did catch up on some of the Easter eggs. Like I've heard of Waterdeep. I've heard of Baldur's Gate. I knew who the Harpers were. I knew who the Grey Hands were. Those little nods helped. Like I was able to get a little chuckle. But I went with my friend who knew nothing about that stuff. And he still loved the movie because just like a good action comedy movie. It's enough of a twist where like you could probably predict what's going to happen. But like you're still thinking like, oh, I, I wonder if, if it really will. It's kind of where I stood with it is I just left it having a really good time. It very much felt to me like Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one I'm speaking about particularly, and how we were introduced to a bunch of characters in a completely fantastical world that, as I said, no one knew the Guardians of the Galaxy beforehand. So it wasn't like it was IP that we had any connection to. No one knew their villains. You know, no one knew anything about that. And yeah. so it introduced us to Guardians of the Galaxy, their universe. They were a bunch of heroes brought together with sort of a jokey style off to save the world with a lot of pop music. It's not on the level of the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I think what the first Guardians of the Galaxy did in terms of mood and music and sort of just like a certain style really changed both the MCU and, you know, I think big kind of blockbusters since then. The fact that it can compare, you know, top three ever MCU type movies speaks to the, the quality of Dungeons and Dragons. This is kind of a very Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing tabletop game, which is this idea that you go off on a quest with a bunch of characters together. And the reason is, is because when you play the actual game, which I've also started a game when I was 10 with a, one of my best friends, we tried once for 20 minutes and everyone got bored and sort of we never went back to it. But like you, I've sort of, I've tinkered around with the video games and the books. And so I sort of have a sense of the world, even though I've never tried it myself. It's always like, okay, we have to get a bunch of people together to go get the gem or to go get the special helmet and to defeat the bad guys. And to some extent, you can say, okay, that's something that's just in fiction as a whole or you see that in other movies the first third of the movie is where the, the main protagonist is going around getting the gang back together like we've seen that in a lot of movies going back forever it does seem something distinctly mcu-y also in order to go on an adventure you need to like have a gang together it can't just be like a sole protagonist Dungeons and dragons can never really be one or two people saving the day by themselves the source material is created five or six friends get together and then they each kind of verbalize out the adventure they're all going on so it can never really be you can never have like a one play or adventure of Dungeons and Dragons, it always has to be multiple people. The adventure type movies got us into in terms of the MCU and we've never really stepped off the bus. Spider-Man or, or Batman type movie where it's kind of classic, there's one guy and he's saving the day or one woman and she's saving the day. You don't really have that nowadays in MCU or that is the source of what Dungeons and Dragons, the role player is about. And therefore that's completely what you're getting in this movie. It's because Dungeons and Dragons is very much like everybody has a class and you're, you have a specialty. If you are a bard, then you're, then you don't do anything. And that was like yeah. kind of a joke it made was like, at Pine was like, why do we need you? And he's like, I just yeah. make the plants. And I just thought that was yeah. really funny. He was like, because yeah, he would be worthless without his team. Take DC, for example, like there's the Justice League. Superman doesn't need these people like he can just do it on his own he doesn't need it mm -hmm. the wizard that's in dungeons and dragons the movie he explains like you just can't magic everything away even though he has like the best abilities he's not very good at them they needed to all find their special skills and work together it was written very well 
to like make all those characters have their time in the sun. Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game, because it is a group dynamic activity, requires it to be a group which is going to solve the day. And I think that plus coming up with your own story and the creativity, those are the two things that which to me are the most D&D. I mean, doing D&D itself is saying, come up with a story. I thought what they did really well with that was like having uh, Chris Pine's character kind of give like his backstory at the at the beginning um, because that's like exactly what you do in the game right like you come up with this backstory for yourself and like you're the one writing the story you're playing D, you're making the story so you want to make it fun for your friends right curious to like what people who aren't into D or like board games or anything like they're like brand new precious world like what they thought about this movie and how creative it was hits with them as much as it did with like you and i and the directors here are the ones who were behind game night a movie that came out like three years ago oh. and i wasn't i was a bit cooler on but a, a lot of people liked that at the oh. time yeah game Night was you know it's similar styles bunch of friends kind of call if they actually you're playing a board game or if they're just running around doing a scavenger hunt yeah, they're doing, like, party games and stuff yeah it was weird it wasn't really a game night but i thought it was a fun enough movie <laughs> the cast and the directors of of this current movie they did actually for several weeks play a game of Dungeons and Dragons using their characters in the movie because the director really wanted them to A, you know, engage with the source material and then B, use that experience. And I was reading an interview where Chris Pine shares this, where he says, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons is like being an actor. You're asked to create a character, communicate that character and interact with other characters. Playing the game, the actors were able to hone their craft further. The actor who plays the heroic NPC, if we can call him that, in Dungeons and Dragons, he plays the paladin who sort of comes to the rescue and then kind of just uh, oh, leaves yes. midway. The actor's name is Rajan Page, R-E-G-E, uh, with a few uh, dashes, so I'm probably mispronouncing that. He stole the movie. He got to have a lot of really fun scenes. And then if you see interviews with him, he spent most of his teenage years just playing Diablo for hours into the night. And he always played Diablo 2. He always played as the paladin. So when he was cast in this movie, he was so excited because he was like, ah, yeah, he's living out of his, his own dream being in this movie. And I, the way he just leaves the movie is perfect. Could sort of just do everything if he stuck around. He has other things to do. So he just kind of wanders off. But the way they're so self-aware of that, they're like, why can't you just stick around? You know, help us. And he's like, nope, got other places to be. Speaking of the actors real quick, because he was great. I thought Chris Pine was really good. I've never been a huge Michelle Rodriguez fan. And at the beginning, I was a little worried she was going to take me out of it. Uh, because she didn't like speak for the first like 15 minutes. She was just kind of sitting there eating a potato. I don't know about this. She was ultimately fine. Do yeah. wonder if I would have casted somebody different myself, but I think weakness of this movie is that there aren't really a villain. I mean, I guess you could say uh what's his name? Like Hugh, uh, Grant. Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant was very much playing Jeff Goldblum. Completely silly. Hey, I took over a world. I thought he was good, but a bit distracting. And everyone else sort of just disappeared. If you replace them in a sequel, another actor playing the same character, it wouldn't change the movie for me. It wouldn't necessarily be a, a negative. That's very much a uh, Marvel thing, too. At least percent of the movie, the mar villains in a Marvel movie are like, they're the worst part of the movie. This movie does a number of things right. It grounds us in the lead characters. It makes the world authentic and somewhat serious. And there's even like touching moments. While at the same time, very self-aware and kind of having a lot of fun with that self-awareness. Things about MacGuffin in this movie. Everything is just to sort of put the people in another scenery. Nothing sort of needs to happen. I do think the movie should have been a half an hour shorter. Even people that like this world haven't done Dungeons and Dragons because it's so intimidating how long it is. You know, you have to get together with your friends for many afternoons. And there is a bit of that maybe where their adventures sort of 
to my mind, kind of drags on a bit. My number one is Tetris, obvious, because it was your number three and we pushed it. As I told you, I try to check out movies which have gotten fairly positive uh, reviews because I try to only see movies I'm going to like, which I didn't uh, manage uh, the last few months. <laughs> and otherwise, I was going to skip it. It was Ford v. Ferrari. It was, um, which I think I'll also check out, but there's a new movie this April that just came out called Air, the story of Nike and how Nike became rich by taking advantage of Michael Jordan. You know, there's this whole new genre of, I don't know how new it is, but it seems new to me, of corporate uh, corporate hero stories, you know, make big corporations into the heroes we never knew we needed. And that's basically kind of what Tetris is, though, to be fair, the people behind the computer game Tetris are not super wealthy. I think they're very moderately successful, despite the success of the game. story of how the computer game Tetris that everyone knows was, so to speak, taken out of the Soviet Union where it was invented and licensed to the rest of the world. And it's also, you could say, the story somewhat of the fall of the Soviet Union, which is such an obvious metaphor, which the movie doesn't even lean into that much. In terms of, you know, Tetris being about a wall coming down and then the wall sort of, you know, breaking. And then when we think of the fall of the Soviet Union, we think of the Berlin Wall, you know, coming down and then uh, the Cold War ending. Did he literally invent the game Tetris as a metaphor for wanting to sort of break down the wall between West and East and to sort of, uh, you know, help end the Cold War? Because Tetris is even said in this movie by characters, it played a major role in ending the Cold War. You know, it distracted everyone in the Soviet Union from doing anything more productive for like five years. This is a movie about the, the year and a half period. American, Dutch, Indonesian, I don't know how many more, Japanese, kind of how many more ethnicities and nationalities does he have? But a, a real life guy named Hank Rogers, who was living in Japan at the time with his family, was introduced randomly to Tetris at CES, which was kind of fun to see CES pop up there. I don't know about for you, Kyle. It's the biggest tech event of the year these days, which is sort of my professional world. And at the time, it was a very nerdy, kind of geeky, uh, small fry conference. So he's introduced to Tetris, and therefore he realizes this game is amazing. It's the best computer game ever. I have to somehow get the licensing rights and partner with someone like Nintendo in order to release it to the world. And he's competing with a entirely true-to-life story of KGB villains. Not entirely, but mainly true-to-life story of KGB and corrupt uh, Soviet uh, politicos, and then very corrupt... British uh, billionaire media publishers. Taron Edgerton stars as the lead. It's directed by John Baird, B-A-I-R-D. He also directed Stan and Ollie. It's the biography of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. When I first heard they were making a movie about Tetris, I was like, I was really hesitant. Like, I was like, what are they even going to do? Um, mm -hmm. so I didn't put much thought into it. And then you recommended it. I'm like, well, there's got to be something there. And so then I looked up and I was like, oh, it's about the, like, the history of, like, making Tetris. I thought it was going to be, like, some stupid, like, almost like a Mario movie where it's, like, the blocks are, like, uh, or, like, an emoji movie where the blocks had personalities or something. Very familiar with Tetris. Like, I grew up with the Game Boy. Everybody in my family played Tetris. I was just really enthralled by, like, the, the story behind Tetris. Now, with that being said, I do think they probably over-dramatized, like, yeah. ending the, like, ending the Soviet Union. I think they were, like, they were really putting emphasis on like, oh, that's capitalism, baby. Like, I, I don't know how much Tetris actually played into that, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I would have. I, I think the movie would have been a like, bit stronger. Really dramatized a lot of that history, but it was still fun. Pretty much all true to life, except it's simplified. And some of the sort of, and the, and the evil KGB guy is a made up character to sort of represent a lot of corrupt uh, Russian, uh, you know, police government types that they, there was KGB activity involved in the story, but it wasn't as kind of straightforward as the movie portrays. And there was no 
there was no drive to the airport being chased by policemen or anything like that, like getting onto the airplane or anything yeah. like that, you know? So they kind of pushed the third act movie style uh, a bit unnecessarily. I think what, and you know, this is high praise for the movie, but uh, the two movies that kind of come to mind, and one is The Social Network, where The Social Network was always communicating to you that ethos that is Facebook and sort of the positive and the negatives is very much endemic to sort of the way, the story of this movie and the way in which, you know, social pressures and getting a like and everything. I mean, it's literally how the movie kind of comes back to it, begins and it ends. And, and there's a power to that. Less in Tetris of conventional Hollywood tropism, like, hey, bad guys are chasing us and we have to run to the airport and all that kind of stuff. And there would have been a bit more leaning in in sort of an artful, thoughtful way to the fall of the Soviet Union and the game and like the dynamic of the game, I think if they would have let, leaned into that a bit further, um, you know, may put the game itself and some of the dynamic of the game a bit more front and shoulders, it would have been a bit more interesting. So the report, which came out like two years ago, it was also it was taking sort of a very complex, legal, kind of dry, real life material and making it into a dramatic enough story. And that's what Tetris is, because the real you know, there were financial and legal lawsuits going on for several years, Kyle, in terms of the, the licensing of Tetris globally. And they managed to sort of reduce that down to sort of one chaotic, uh, overly dramatized film. What I really like about Tetris and why I would strongly recommend it is its heart, is it sort of the friendship between two people. And yeah. that's what it really does very well. It had a lot of shades of the Nick Cage movie from last year with Pedro Pascal. Two of them really make the movie work and just the relationship between the two of them. I felt the relationship between the two leads here and, and the actual characters who I guess did become best friends. It really makes it a movie where you just want to, you just want to watch it. You're like, Oh, this is like so endearing and real. These like two outcasts who, these two people who don't really seem to have a future and the, and their societies are sort of betting against them. The two of them really identify with each other. To me, the best scene in this movie is when they're coding Tetris together. They're like playing Tetris together and they're sort of like geeking out as like computer so cool. programmers. Yeah, I mean, there's something just like very, and you, you realize like, oh, like these two guys are not that different. You want their friendship to succeed against all the corrupt politicos. Did you know really shady connection between the British billionaire and who his daughter is? No, no, I have no idea. So I, I don't know if I should then ruin that, uh, some of it for you. In this movie, Robert Maxwell and his son play two of the bad guys. They're sort of the competition with the hero to license Tetris. And that's a true life story. Robert Maxwell was a powerful British media baron, as shown in the movie. He was going bankrupt, feeding millions of dollars from the pension funds with his own employees. He died in a very mysterious fashion. He fell off his million dollar yacht while off the coast of France somewhere. He's been identified as spy for the KGB. He was a spy for British intelligence, for Israeli intelligence. He's a really fascinating, complex, real-life character, Robert Maxwell. So he's one of the bad guys. And I thought he's played really well in this movie. He's, his youngest daughter is not mentioned in the movie at all because she is Jeffrey Epstein's ex-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. She sort of uh, helped Jeffrey Epstein do some of his nefarious oh activities. From the father, who was this corrupt, shady, mysterious figure, to his daughter, ultimately did, you know, heinous acts with Jeffrey Epstein. There's really like a long, twisty web with this Maxwell family. And the fact that this movie plays up probably the least known element of the Maxwell family, which is how dastardly they competed to license Tetris. And to think how close we came to the Maxwell family being the owners, you know, arguably most popular computer game of all time is pretty crazy yeah, because they were that insane. close. That yeah, they were sucks. that close. What the heck? Oh, my. Again, even though the father stole hundreds of millions of dollars from his own employees, 
his character in this movie is really fun. Large balloon-like guy. He looks kind of like a Winston Churchill does in movies. Oh, I'm good friends with Gorbachev. Just go and figure everything out. I don't know. Call out some couple movies that I thought were like good, but didn't make the top three were uh, Knock at the Cabin and uh, mm-hmm. The Boston Strangler. Knock at the Cabin is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I used to like stand M. Night Shyamalan. I, I really like Signs. I thought The Village was good. I liked The Sixth Sense. And then he became kind of a punching bag. Uh, old is terrible. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. So I was like really worried about Knock at the Cabin. But yeah, it, it's a good movie. Have you seen Knock at the Cabin yet? No, I, I, so I avoid horror movies and M. Night has sort of become a horror himself, his recent movies. So uh, between, <laughs> yeah. between the genre of what he makes and between just kind of being put off by a lot of his movies no compunction for that boston strangler i guess is a horror movie but it's real life a lot of these movies that sort of glorify serial killers i just uncomfortable with the way that our culture is obsessed with serial killers and we like make movies about them and netflix specials and and talk about them a lot in the newspaper that's fair um i definitely think we have an unhealthy obsession with serial killers uh, as like the serial podcast obviously had a, a huge influence and uh, a mm-hmm. murder, obviously another big thing that in our cultural zeitgeist. This mm-hmm. is more of a, a newspaper movie, a reporting movie in the vein of mm-hmm. Spotlight. I just like seeing reporters do their investigating. Even though it's not necessarily like the strongest movie, if you have like two hours to kill and you want something that's decent and it's on Netflix, I, mm-hmm. I do recommend Boston Strangler. I saw, as I said, a bunch of foreign language. All of these were well-reviewed. And I'm just going to name names and say skip them. Godland, complete skip. Don't even ask me what it's about. Skip. St. Omer got a lot of love. People were saying number one of 2022, even though it came out in the US, I guess, in February 2023 movie. True life story. The director was a reporter and she had wanted to see the trial of a fellow African migrant to France who was on trial for killing her daughter. And it was a real life criminal case. And then she made a movie about it. The scenes in the courtroom are sort of well done. All the scenes outside of the courtroom are really not well done and they take away from the movie. And the more time we spend with the reporter, who's the director, meaning not the actress, but it's she, that's her real life story. The more time spent with the director character, the reporter takes away from the movie and doesn't work. And we don't get to spend maybe enough time with, I guess, the woman on trial. So St. Omer, Skip, Killbox Soon, a Korean movie. It's on Netflix. It's trying to be like John Wick. The characters are bland. The action scenes just don't do so much for me. They have that like elevator music, like rock music playing in the background. It just starts up whenever, you know, they start fighting with each other. It's similar and it seems like uh, Netflix is really having a moment with Mother Assassins because there was a movie a year or two ago called Gunpowder Milkshake with Lena Headey from uh, Game of Thrones as the mom was a trained assassin. And then in a few months, Jennifer Lopez is playing a trained assassin mother issues with her teenage daughter in a movie called The Mother, also on Netflix. And how does the mother assassin and the daughter sort of get together? So this is a Korean version of that. Problem for me is that the mother-daughter dynamic that wants to drive this action movie, it's really kind of action, you know, Korean style fighting movie otherwise, which some people might really like. But the mother-daughter dynamic, which is really trying to drive this movie, at the hour and a half moment, there had been only really one action scene so far, so it's not that similar to John Wick. And I was, why are they just trying to drive this movie on the mother-daughter? They should just settle into the action side of it. The mother-daughter stuff isn't really working for me. If it works for some people, but like to me, I think you can skip it. It's on Netflix. Close is a French movie. Again, it was the most loved movie at the Cannes Festival of last year. Wow, Close will steal your heart. It's so emotional. It's about two 10-year-old boys and their friendship, I mean, then how their friendship goes wrong and the, and the consequences. I'll leave it off as that. I thought I was watching a movie where like, the mother of one of the boys maybe was abusive. That isn't the case, I can assure you. It's simply a movie about two boys and their friendship and how that friendship goes sour. In the beginning, when the two kids are hanging out is the best part for me. The story kind of settles into conventional bits 
by the second act and the third act. So I think Close you can skip. Rylane is a British movie, so you could say it's in Americanese, but it very much has a distinct overseas style. And you're going to need subtitles if you watch it. Rylane is a really conventional rom-com. The only thing it has going for it is it's set in sort of the world of Steve McQueen's Caribbean immigrants to the to London. The best parts of the movie is the speaking style, speaking a very local dialect, immigrant uh, British English. And then the scenes that are just set showing off this local immigrant community to Leeds walk around trying to have like a beyond uh, sunrise date as they show like the city life behind them. It's the best part of the movie and that's kind of fun. But that, you know, you can see in like a tourism brochure or better yet, just go to London. I did see it. Too artsy fartsy for me. I was going to say it's too conventionally rom-com. Story for sure is conventionally rom-com. Like there is nothing special about the story at all. Camera shots and like the directing of it. And it's just like, it's weird for the sake of weird at some point. So yeah. It's just like, oh, well, let's do this cool camera shot because we have nothing else going for us. A director had this, like, all these cool ideas for shots in his head. He's like, well, let's just throw a plot onto it and we'll make it. It has, like, a Guy Ritchie, his, like, British gang movies of the of the 90s. Guy Ritchie music video style. It jumps in and then it shows flashbacks. You're right. So on Hulu. I think it's streaming in a few places, though, yeah. Getting a lot of love. It has, like, over 90s and all the various uh, review boards. But uh, to me, it's a skip. Like, there's no reason to check out Riley unless you really like rom coms I agree. Um, and that I wanted all of them to be good. I wanted to like all of them. All of them okay. were a complete miss for me. I have to mention, because uh, this is a 32 Fans podcast, I did suffer through 80 for Brady. It was very bad. Didn't he retire the weekend that movie came out? Time in Public was at the premiere of the movie. A few other misses. Missing is sort of the sequel to Searching. Searching was a movie that came out a few years ago that I really liked. It's all about showing the whole movie as a John Cho looks for his daughter screens. So the entire movie is actual in-movie like cameras or it's just showing computer screens or cell phone screens. They do the same shtick in uh, Missing. Problem is Missing lacks the heart, the acting. It lacks sort of the fish out of water of the lead. Like John Cho in Searching like didn't really understand computer so much. While in Missing, the main character is a daughter who's looking for her mom. So it's kind of turned on its head. And, you know, the daughter is like super savvy with everything computers. So it kind of lacks that kind of uh, uh, Austin Powers is living in a time that isn't his. Uh, Missing is a miss. Two A24 movies came out. Jesse Eisenberg directed his first movie called When You Finish Saving the World with uh, Julian Margolis and a few others. It's an easy miss. It doesn't work. When You Finish Saving the World, you can read about it, but uh, don't watch it. Sharper's a movie that I thought I'd like a lot and I was sure I'd be able to recommend. It's another A24 movie. Movie about con men. The best part about Sebastian Stan or this movie Sharper is that he has like a silly dance kitchen scene which is very similar to the silly dance to pop music he has in horror movie that came out in 2022 that I know uh, a bunch of people liked. So Sebastian Stan dancing is the best part of Sharper. Sharper is a bad con movie because the main con is so obvious. I don't want to sound like uh, someone who I'm not. Sharper is one of those movies where like, it's so obvious that the more you are a minority in the movie, the more you are the hero and the more the movie will redeem you. So the more you're sort of a conventional wealthy upper-class white person the more you're the bad guy i don't mind like movies being you know pc or certain kind of politics pc but for sort of any character regardless of how they are on screen is redeemable if they are a minority in sharper while i just felt the movie would have been more fun if it would have just kind of let a bunch of con men con each other at all times which this movie doesn't do. So Sharper, unfortunately, is a miss. I was hoping to like it. And then finally, I'll just leave you with two more that surprisingly neither of us had a chance to really call attention to. And I'm sure certain people have been grinding their teeth this whole episode. Creed 3, to me, was a big miss. It was a long movie, and I felt I had spent barely any time with Jonathan Majors or Michael B. Jordan by the end of it. 
The fighting scenes I felt were bad. In movie plot, Jonathan Majors gets out of jail and he's like, hey, can you let me fight for the heavyweight? Michael Jabir Jordan's like, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to like work your way up. You don't just get to become like the heavyweight champion in one fight. And then like five minutes later, the movie, and now Jonathan Majors is fighting in his first fight out of prison for the heavyweight champion of the world against a guy who looks like he's 100 pounds soaking wet. Creed 3, complete miss. Go back and watch Rocky 3 and you'll have a better time. And finally, John Wick 4. You have been avoiding John Wick 4 or you didn't want to see it? I've not seen any John Wick or any Creed. I like the first few Creeds. I would say of the two of those, I would go for Creed. But I'm also a bit of a sports movie fan, as is well known. If you're going to get into the John Wicks, I would say watch the first one and then this one and skip the two in the middle, which is a funny thing to say because this one is sort of a direct, direct sequel to two and three. One and two are a bit connected, but really two, three and four are thematically connected, which is and this is a story that's been told many times. So I don't have to go into it, which is that one was kind of a standalone revenge story, sort of like a movie I like a lot with Mel Gibson called Payback. And that was John Wick one. And then two, three, and four have done this thing where they've tripled down on the whole silly made-up fantasy world of the John Wick universe, where there's a secret cabal of assassins that are controlling the world, and they have all sorts of antiquated technology and women with a lot of tattoos and phone booths that look like they live in the Matrix. And it just become like very high in its own supply in terms of its own fantasy world that it's created. And even though John Wick 4 is like that as much as two and three, John Wick 4 is really a video game. It's just really a guy going around getting into fights at all times. And I think the camera work is pretty. Filming a sport. It's like filming a, a ballet. They're really into like churches. They like to sort of imagine that the entire Catholic church is actually just an assassin's guild. So as you can imagine, a lot of the movie in a very Hong Kong fashion shot inside of Catholic churches with lots of candles and stained glass. And, you know, and those things do look very pretty on camera. And this movie knows how to play them to its strengths. So there's a lot of smoke and candles and stained glass and like, you know, priests with long beards and all that kind of stuff. Started watching John Wick last night, hoping to watch it in time for this uh, episode. I got to the two hour mark and I stopped to go to sleep because I want to be, you know, awake when we spoke. So I've not actually seen the last 15, 20 minutes of John Wick, but I'm just not really enjoying it so far. Like I'm enjoying it as Quanta Reeves is fun to hang out with. This script is so bad. Quanta Reeves acting is so mailed in. Like he's, he's barely acting. He's basically just like walking into action scenes you don't need a two and a half hour movie that's pure action everything ever all at once um you know wasn't pure action by any means but i felt if they would have just cut short some of the action scenes i felt it would have been a better movie and obviously a shorter movie the, the bad guy in john wick 4 I, I don't find his character or him on camera particularly interesting um so yeah i'm sort of uh just sort of coasting through john wick 4 but it's just not a movie i recommend it's it's too long it doesn't do anything new and if you haven't gotten into the Wick franchise, this is not something that, I, you know, is going to validate a decision to get into it. I'll get my classics corner and then uh, curious to see sort of what direction you went to. John and I are preparing to do a 2013 bracket a bit later this year. Movie bracket of the 32 uh, best movies from 2013 face off against each other. I did see the Beyond trilogy for the first time. Beyond Sunset and Beyond Sunrise. Beyond Midnight is what came out in 2013. So I saw the two prior Beyond movies, 1994 and 2004. Both of them I like a lot. First one is about a couple meeting on a train in their 20s. So it's a classic movie of how when you're in your teens and your 20s and you can have this kind of fantastical romantic meet for the first time will we ever see each other again type romance. So that's the first movie. The second one is people meeting in their 30s. Both of them are in broken relationships. And, you know, he's in the process of getting divorced and she's kind of dating a guy but isn't really feeling it. And then they sort of rekindle their romance from when they were like young and in their 20s, but now they're in their 30s. And then the third one, which is the 2013 movie, which John and I will do later, is about a couple, I guess, in their like late 40s and they have kids 
and they're sort of trying to rekindle a relationship that you know now has been uh, materialized for some time. Let's just focus on the first two. Which of those kind of do you identify with more? That special romance you had, whether it's with your current partner or someone else in your teens and 20s, that first love, or whether it's kind of that you were in your late 20s or 30s or, or maybe even your teens, but you were in a broken relationship and then you met someone in the course of that. I never really had the experience of the second movie, which was really striking to me. I had the experience of the first movie, and I, and I guess I've had the experience of the third movie, a real lived experience for a lot of people, which is to be in their late 20s and 30s and to kind of maybe not be in a good relationship and then to sort of transition out of that. I never really had that. Uh, I was basically a single guy until the end of my 20s, and then I met my now wife, and then we've been, you know, plus minus happily married ever since. I had a yeah, hard time. So I sort of had a hard time with the second of the Beyond trilogy, the one that came out in 2004. Each movie gets increasingly better, so I like the second one more than the first one, but I can identify with the first one, and anything else you want to discuss beyond, check back in with John and I when we uh, do the 2013 bracket later this year. But yeah, how about, how about you? What is a movie that didn't come out this year that you uh, had a chance to catch up with and particularly uh, want to share? I had never seen a Wes Anderson movie until this year. And now Wes Anderson is probably my favorite director. Uh, wow. I've, only seen th- I've only seen three of his movies so far. So I got some catching up to do. But I got to give a shout out to uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Immediately, I gave it a five star. I watched it again with my daughter. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, I, I just love being in that world so much. Have you seen Fantastic Mr. Fox? Wes Anderson. I kind of like them, but I don't love them. But no, I've never seen that one. People were just asking about what's a good kids movie. And I was saying anything that's cartoon with animals qualifies. This is like an adult movie, but it's like made for kids because it is PG. Like you can watch it with your children. There's like not even that much of a plot. Kind of like what you were saying is like you don't have to write a strong plot. You just have to write well. It just got very dry humor, very good voice acting. The animation is wild. Similar to how like Spider-Verse is like really unique animation. Like when you see that animation style, you see Spider-Verse. Well, like Fantastic Mr. Fox is its own thing where it's like stop motion. It's really clever use of storytelling in my opinion and i just had a blast with it so that's a highest of recommend for me uh whether you have kids or not but you can watch it with kids it's coming out with uh one this year so you know we'll have more uh we'll have more west anderson to look forward to kyle there was any number of topics uh that i was hoping to get into but uh, the time is uh getting past us how can people follow up with your movie podcast or otherwise kind of hear about your thoughts on uh anything and everything related to this podcast and others Check us out on uh, Board Game Box Office, uh, Table Nuts Podcast. That's going to be in all of your podcast platforms. We also have a YouTube channel that's strictly board games, um, if you're interested in that. YouTube channel is just called Table Knots. I'm not on that a ton. Uh, it's mostly my co-host, but I do have a couple videos uh, on there. It's just they're located in Kentucky, so they're a few hours away, so they usually do those without me. And then if you are just interested in following me on Letterboxd, I'm on there and my name on there is CBJ King, K-I-N-G. But you're also the, the champion of our brother podcast, uh, of the Patreon. Oh, yeah, what, a, what an honor. What an yeah. honor to take down Brett. Not just him. Took down John Patrick. I hope the movies that could have been safe, like Dungeons and Dragons, we get a bit more of that than this coming year. Because then that, together with, you know, the the buzzy stuff, I think we'll have a fun movie year. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a great time. It was good chatting with you. And uh, we'll have to have you on our podcast sometime soon, too. We'll do a, a home Yeah, home. later. Bye. Baby, you and me are a twisted fantasy, but it's right.